Greetings. You're listening to the Bonnie Boat Sailing Podcast. My name is Chris Smith. Whether you're a grizzled old salt, pining for the days of wire rope halyards, or a greenhorn, wondering what the hell a dolphin striker is, this is the podcast that seeks to fill the need for everybody's third most favorite pastime. That is, talking about sailing. Hello, sailors. Thanks for tuning in. This month's episode is a retrospective of the past year's interviews. You may correctly assume that implies I did not get organized enough to do a new episode, but in going back over these interviews, I've been reminded of how cool it is for me to have the opportunity to talk to so many interesting folks. Uh, so there's some, some good stuff in here that uh, I've kind of pulled out of uh, the past year's interviews. Uh, and if you're new here, I should reiterate that this whole pod thing is my kind of long-form note to self, just trying to collate data and make connections among sailors. So thanks for tuning in. I do have some cool interviews tentatively scheduled for the next few months, so do not fret. There is more in the pipeline. Hopefully early next year, I'll be speaking with James and Camille of the Alberg 30 Tritea, uh, and hopefully Emily Greenberg of the blog Dingy Dreams will return to the pod as well. That being said, if any of you have suggestions, I'm always open. And if you have an interesting story to tell about sailing, I'm always interested to hear that as well. So first up in the retrospective collection is Jason and Kirsten, whom we met down in Florida, the Florida Keys when we were sailing our respective Alberg-designed classic plastic sailboats. Uh, and here they are from the episode Increase the Fleet, talking about their Alberg 30 and crossing the Gulf Stream to the Bahamas. And so what, what um, attracted you guys to the, uh, the Alberg 30? Jean de Food, of yeah, course. Of course. <laughs> you were talking about your uh, Quebecois roots here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know if you want that out on the Yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and what did, you, what did you guys think of that boat? It's my that's favorite boat. I only, like, if yeah. if we could find another Alberg, I would only... Which we did. Sail Just now. that forever. Yes. I'm not there yet. <laughs> um, but that was the that was the best. After everything I've seen it go through, uh-huh. I don't feel that we couldn't be safer in any other vessel, really. Like, well, okay, well, give me an example. Like, what, especially compared to the bigger boat, what was the difference? Well, like the seaworthiness. I feel like you know, if it, our last time coming back from the Bahamas. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. And I think if we had been in the Islander, it would have been like a... Like a disaster. Full-on disaster. disaster. <laughs> like like nautical, nautical disaster. For sure. You know, I don't know about flip, but not. it would have been much different. Um, the Alberger really is like, handles that kind of stuff. It just cuts through the water. It just, like it, I feel like it would have thrown us out of the water and that boat would have kept going. That boat's awesome. And the sunrise comes yeah. and you're like hitting the Bahamas and you see that first little island it and all of a sudden awesome. there was just like a, like eight dolphins just like chasing, like running in front of the bow. Alrighty. Next up is my good friend Jared Lawson from the episode Fishing for Sailors, giving us some advice on a basic fishing setup as well as his motivations for spending time on the water. So just to, just to kind of tie it all together, um, someone who hasn't doesn't doesn't know much about fishing, but wants to have something to kind of throw over, you know, throw a line in 
and, and hopefully occasionally get a fish in the boat. What's a real kind of bare bones, simple rig that's going to kind of be versatile? Um, what's, you know, wh how would you approach that? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, starting out just a basic spinning reel, um, which has kind of an open spool um, that's controlled by a bale line just comes off really easy to use, easy to operate. Um, and then just something like a medium power rod, you know, in the six to seven foot range, mm -hmm. I would say. And then for a lot of the just basic fish, I would say anywhere from a 10 to 20 pound test okay. line, you know, whether mm -hmm. you're using braid or, or monofilament. Fluorocarbon leader, is that like a good, just like, just put it on everything? Yeah, if you have spooky fish or you're fishing clear water, you know, I, I use a fluorocarbon leader a lot. And mm -hmm. I'll do a line-to-line -line knot or or use a swivel, um, you know, depending on, on how I'm fishing. Um, and, you know, for a lot of the fishing I do, you know, a real simple way to just go out like in, in shallow water and you just throw in artificial lures. Just uh, It's called a, a paddle tail plastic. It's a soft plastic paddle tail lure. You mm -hmm. attach that to a... You know, anywhere from an eighth ounce to a to a whatever an ounce uh, jig head paddle um, paddle tail paddle tail paddle tail to a jig head. Yeah, like Bass Assassins makes them. All kinds of companies make them. Yeah, man. Um, and and that's a real easy. Just kind of throw it out, reel it back in. Has its own action. Yeah, yeah imitates yeah. a small bait fish. Okay, and it works for all kinds of stuff. And then know? and then let's say you're doing your bottom fishing. You said what was the rig that you said? Uh, high low rig. High low rig. Yeah, that's that's kind of your real basic rig, but it you know it gets the job done. Um, and and like I said, that's just that that kind of wire rig has a couple of arms, right? Hooks attached, and, right? And, and you and that would be something you bought pre-made called yeah. a high would it be would it be called a high low rig is that like it, a, yeah you'll usually? see you'll, you'll see them they're like in, any tackle shop will have them um i make my own but um it's just as easy to buy them yeah um and uh you know just a, a piece of squid a small shrimp a blood worm yeah um and then you know that just kind of opens you up to a variety of species you drop it down kind of see what happens easy way to uh to get started see what see what's down there yeah and you know a lot of folks when you see people fishing from piers and that's what they're that, doing yeah they're using just kind of that high level rig, especially in the chesapeake bay well you know it's the hunt yeah it, it's, it's it's always <laughs> you know it, I don't necessarily need to go out and, and catch a hundred fish. It's great when you do, yeah. but, uh, it's, it's more of the experience kind of being in nature and then, and trying to, uh, just kind of solve the puzzle, you know, it's kind of, it's, it, and a lot of times I say it's more, it's more hunting than fishing. It's, uh -huh. it's trying to, uh, to kind of track that species down and, and, and kind of figure it out that day in, the, in those particular, um, set of conditions that you're given. And it's, it's just, it's a challenge. Um, and, you know, just kind of being on the water and close to the water, being, being close to nature, um, you know, just kind of, that's where, it's where I'm at peace, you know? Yeah. So, you know, but it's a, it's a, a lifelong pursuit. Thanks, Jared. Next up on this hit parade is yacht surveyor and author Jim Elfers from the episode Blue Water on a Budget. And here he is talking about some things to watch out for when buying an older boat, as well as another important factor to consider when sailing, namely love of the ocean. So what are, um, if, if someone was looking at an older boat to purchase, what are some kind of potential issues, maybe specific to boats that have been, been around the block a time or two? Well, I would say look for amateur work, you know, I mean, when you, 
you know, look behind the breaker panel, and if you see just a rat's nest of wiring in there, and you know, one butt connector spliced to another butt connector, <laughs> you know, um, if the lights are all dim when you turn on the lights, even though the battery's at 13 volts, you know, and you've got voltage drop. I mean, electrical is a huge thing that a lot of people don't know how to deal with, even though DC systems are actually pretty simple. Um, but it is a huge pain to rewire a boat. And that's one of the things I often point out is there is a life expectancy for wiring, especially in a saltwater environment. And a lot of manufacturers talk about 25 years, 20 years, maybe you get to 30 years, but I've pulled off dome lights on sailboats, especially Taiwanese boats. I've pulled off dome lights and literally had copper powder come raining down on me, you know, (laughs) So, uh, and that is a huge access problem because the materials, the wiring itself is probably under $700, $600, but the access to get in and do all those wire runs. I've seen people do external wire runs with staple guns, you know, because it's such a pain to deal with the, the wire up and the headliner. Yeah. Um, so, so that's one thing. The electrical is, can be a nightmare. Um, you know, you don't have to worry too much about... Um, basic gel coat uh, issues like gouges and scratches but if you have tons and tons of hairline cracks a lot of people think mistakenly that hairline cracks can just be backfilled with primer and then painted well you know that's going to look good for a year or two but those cracks will come back and uh, dealing with with wholesale gel coat cracking or crazing as it's called is a big problem so uh, you know I mean I have the O'Day 40 in my list uh, on my list of possible candidates but that particular boat you got to watch out because unfortunately they had some pretty bad gel coat uh, runs in that production run and uh, so I always worry about gel coat um, things like uh, I know how to get sales cheap so frankly I don't worry too much about sales because there's a place near you in Annapolis is fantastic right uh, bacon yeah yeah bacon is fantastic I've been getting sales from them for years so but, uh, you know, I'll talk down the boat. I'll say, oh, I don't know if I want to spend 35 grand if it's a boat I'm looking right, at. Right, you know? right. <laughs> uh, I got all the money I got to put out for sale, you know, and then I'll turn around, buy the boat, and I'll get sales for three grand instead of seven grand. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> um, and um, other issues, I guess, would be, I guess the, the thing is to check out on the hidden stuff, for instance, rudder stocks, okay? On an older Taiwan boat, it is not unheard of for you to be out a third of the way to Tahiti, and unfortunately, you know, honey, you know, I don't have any steering. What's going on? You look back, and your rudder is floating away behind you. Um, and that happens when you get old Taiwanese stainless rudder stocks that have been um, aging in salt water for 30 years. So that is something that a lot of surveyors are simply not going to be able to really check. They're going to have a small gap at the bottom, you know, maybe the three eighths of an inch or half an inch, or maybe a little more where they can actually see something. But they don't have, you know, uh, x-ray vision or anything to see what's going on with the rudder tabbing. Mm-hmm. So with those kinds of things, sometimes you can get some help from the Internet. You know, uh, I came up behind, uh, when I say come up behind, I mean after the fact, I did a uh, Chris Craft 35 just as a consultation about two weeks ago. And they had bought the boat off Craigslist, super cheap. And, you know, I normally wouldn't even get close to a boat like this. But, you know, they were just begging me on the phone. So I went (laughs) down and we're sitting there at the marina. And this was a uh, marina that shoaled in uh, with mud regularly. And a lot of the sailboats, frankly, were completely in the mud at low tide. Mm -hmm. So they thought 
that, you know, they had no steering when they tried to take it to the boat yard, no steering at all, and they just sort of nursed it back into the slip with the help of a dinghy, and and we turn the wheel, and we see the top of the rudder stock moving, and I say, well, it seems like it's there, but, you know, bottom line is they hauled the boat out after getting towed to the boatyard. There was no rudder there. The rudder was gone. Wow. And um, it had sheared right off from the, I guess, from the waiting and unwaiting there in the slip, but it was a 40-year-old rudder stock, and, you know, you don't want to lose your rudder. So, in fact, I always tell people that want to go blue water, my God, get a, an emergency rudder, uh, or at least have you know, some kind of uh, vein steering that can work. But uh, anyway, so, you know, as far as what you're looking for, yeah, the electrical, I always think, is a big issue. Uh, hidden stainless steel issues, if the boat has a reputation for chain plates that fail or for rudder stocks that fail. The stuff you can see, you know, at least you can get a, a handle on it. You can see the gel coat scratches. You can see the, the tattered sails. But there's a lot of stuff you can't see that might be a nightmare for you. more quick questions and i wanted to end um with a question less about about boats and and surveys and more about um you talk about kind of the attitude of, of, of a successful cruiser in the book a bit uh and you write that while you were living down in, in cabo san lucas uh, you saw a lot of sailors come through uh and that the happiness index wasn't always related to the uh, the size of the boat or the size of the bank account um so what do you think some of kind of common factors are for people for sailors with a high happiness index. If you are really comfortable, if you're a real ocean lover, um, you know, it starts with that. It's the people who love the ocean. Right. Whether they, whether they come from a surfing background or just a an ocean gazing background, it doesn't <laughs> matter, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, I got that got that fire a little bit. Exactly. Next up are Adam and Chiara of the Vessel and YouTube channel, Sailing Millennial Falcon, speaking about the freedom that life under sail affords them. You want me to answer that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> She's looking at me going, that's for you, mate. <laughs> um, I think it's, oh, it's, it's freedom. That's the first thing that comes yeah, to my head. Yeah, pretty it's much. It's freedom. Um, freedom the of... The reason why we wanted to do this in the beginning was freedom, and the reason why we're still out here is freedom, I guess. Yeah, freedom of choice to... Go where you want to go, when you want to go. Um, freedom to grow in any way you want, to do as little or as much as you want. Um, to decide that tomorrow we, we want to go to the next island or yeah. that we want to go on a, um, you know, let's have a night camping on a desert island, that kind of thing. You know, it's, uh, I'd say that's, yeah, that's certainly, despite any ups and downs that we might have had, I think that is always really nice to know that we are. Yeah, and the freedom to do whatever we want. <laughs> it's not just the it's not just the uh, the cliche sense of freedom. It's the bad side of freedom too, and I like that as much. Like, you know, this saying "freedom isn't free." The the cliche. And yeah, it's, that's it's, true. It's true. You gotta you gotta earn it. But like, um, it's kind of a rush. It's it's kind of a rush to, in some small way, stand apart from the rest of the world and join a different community of cruisers. Uh, yeah, yeah. And um and and to say like look I'm prepared to come out here and take it in the teeth and and be on my own um, and to to step up to whatever challenges come our way uh, it's a rush that's that's living that's life that's you know yeah. that's real life like you know when I get to my 
deathbed i'll look back and say you know like we we went out there and we gave it a red hot go and we we lived like yeah even so. if we sink tomorrow and uh we have to go <laughs> home we'll say you know we'll we'll be able to forever say that we came yeah. out here and we we dared to yep. dared to st stand apart Here we have Jeffrey Wedig of the Shooting the Breeze Sailing Podcast talking about developing his confidence as a sailor on the Chesapeake Bay, uh, which was something in particular I appreciated as I was listening back through these uh, these episodes and putting it all together. So Jeff Wedig of the Shooting the Breeze Podcast. You know, I wasn't necessarily green, but I wasn't necessarily super experienced either. You know, it's blowing 2530 and, and I'm heeled over. I got the rail buried in the water. I'm holding on for dear life, you know. And, so yeah, it was definitely the experience. And then it honestly, it was a sea change in kind of the way I thought about sailing and just the confidence level. Like I was always kind of a skittish solo sailor. Um, you know, every time we would go into an anchorage, I'm like calling up the guys that I'm with on the radio, you know, like, what are we doing? Where are we going? You know, like, and you know, their answer always was like, look at the chart. <laughs> You know, and so after that trip and, you know, just the sailing and heavy weather, going into anchorages that I didn't know, reading the chart, having the GPS as, as an option that I didn't have before, uh, you know, after I did that trip, then I was kind of a lot more calm about things and felt a lot more confident about being just boat handling in general, you know. Alrighty, next up is Jason Jernigan from the episode Delmarva Loop, talking about figuring out his sleep schedule as a single-hander and his plans for a circumnavigation. Since we recorded that episode, he has indeed embarked and is currently in the Bahamas with plans to sail directly to the San Blas in Panama, last I heard. Uh, and there's a cool video that James Baldwin posted up on YouTube of a tour of uh, Jason's boat uh, when he was down in Brunswick, Georgia, working with James on some, some last-minute stuff. Uh, so I posted the link to that on the Bonnie Boat Facebook page. From coming out of these trips, you mentioned kind of the the solo aspect and, and trying to kind of get all of that figured out. Um, how did how did the sleep work? Um, how did the, you know, handling the boat by yourself, did that all kind of feel like you got a handle on that? Yeah, so, so handling the boat, I've always been pretty comfortable with doing it by myself. And then the sleep... That, that first night, I think because I'd gotten such an early start, um, it was a long day. I didn't sleep, didn't take any naps during the day, which I probably should have. Um, but that first night was brutal sleeping 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll bet. It was also, I didn't see a thing all night. So so I think that might have been part of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're kind of getting up every 20 minutes and you're looking around. And then by the time, you know, five, six o'clock in the morning runs around, you're going, I haven't seen anything. <laughs> yeah. But I still was getting up and doing it. Um, just being on the East Coast, you know, you don't know how much shipping is out there and yeah, stuff. Yeah, for sure. And um, and I actually did see a fishing boat like six o'clock in the morning. Um, the AIS alarm went off, and and they they crossed my bow not too far off. But um, and that was the only thing I think I saw the first night. And then the uh, the second night went much much better. But I, I was heading into Delaware, and there was a lot of shipping traffic. So. Now this is all kind of running up to a to a circumnavigation. So what is um 
what's what's your plan for for that? That sounds pretty uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. So so I am I'm planning on taking a couple of well, I've quit my job as of September. Awesome. And um, I gave him a year's notice, and uh, yeah, so I've decided to sail around the world. And um, my plan is to leave in November, as soon as hurricane season is kind of winding down. And I've mapped out the um, the course that I'm at least from the beginning that I'm going to take, and I've got a rough idea of how all of it's going to work. Uh, but I'm planning on leaving the beginning of November and heading to to Bermuda. Mm-hmm. And from Bermuda, I've got some friends that I met when I was cruising with my dad that still live in the U.S. Virgin Islands. So I'm going to sail down to St. Thomas and say hi to them. And um, I've got a friend of mine who's going to join me for the trip to Bermuda. So that's the only part of the trip so far that I'm I'm expecting not to be solo. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then from once I leave out of the U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, my plan is to head straight to the San Blas in in Panama. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and spend some time there. And then I hope to go through the canal towards the end of January. I don't want to get to the Marquesas much before April. Um, so that's, that's part of that. The, um, from Panama to the Marquesas is, is probably my biggest kind of worry. It's 4,000 miles. Yeah. It's a long way. What do you, um, how long do you think that'll take you? So, you know, I generally figure on about a hundred miles a day, mm-hmm. uh, for my boat and, and it worked well um on the trip up from georgia for that and so it's a pretty good number but that trip's also crossing the um um the doldrums of the intertropical convergence zone right mm-hmm. um and so i figure i should probably add some time for that so i'm thinking probably 50 days yeah it's a good that's uh, a good long while yeah that's a good long while but um, you know, I follow some some things on YouTube, and there's the there's a guy. What's his name? An old sea dog or something like that. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm familiar with it. Yeah, so he just did that trip this year, and it took him 71 days. Wow. And he's on a bigger boat than I'm on. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. I guess uh, I guess as long as you have enough water, I guess you'll get there eventually, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I am gonna carry a water maker. You know, probably a, a manually powered water maker gotcha yeah um just to (laughs) just in case (laughs) here we have jeffrey and margaret of return to season sailing talking about taking the leap to go offshore and their motivations for traveling under sail what about advice that you guys might have for someone considering taking their uh, you know first steps into into skippering a boat offshore? I would say just do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, um, you know, you don't know what you don't know until you're out there. And um, I don't know. I, I just it's not that hard. You know what I mean? It's, it's not rocket science at all. Um, you know, get the boat ready and and go, or or get the boat half ready and go. I guess. You know? <laughs> Cool. I think I like it. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's really fun to go out with a group of people, and so everybody's sort of cheering each other on. And you know, if you have a couple extra crew instead of just being sing, you know, single-handed or or two people, um, it can make the experience a little bit more lighthearted, a little easier. You're sort of sharing the work together, um, and we'd like to do more of that ourselves. 
So what? Uh, and what keeps you guys coming back? So it sounds like you're thinking of you know you want to keep keep sailing. What's what's the attraction? What uh, you know what what pulls you back into it? I think there's a lot of things, and it's a little bit different for both of us. Uh, I certainly you know I mean I love I love anything about being on a boat or being around a boat, and I certainly love offshore passage making. Um, you know I mean I haven't done a lot of it, but I I really enjoy that and look forward to doing more of it. Um, we also certainly enjoyed being on the boat almost there's something about being on a boat anywhere. Um, it gives you access to a community in, in, in a different way and, and, and to the, the environment around you in a different way than if you're on land or, you know, if you live there, or you're vacationing there or something like that. It, it really is a sort of weird, you, you're always a guest in the community. You're always welcome to the community in a way that you're not as a tourist. Um, and you get to see the nature around you in all the time because you have to being on a boat. Um, and, you know, I, I think we both enjoy travel. I think that's a probably a bit more appealing for Margaret about it than it is for me. Not that it's not appealing for me, but. Yeah. For me, it's the opportunity to travel, to find new and exciting things to make work about, to photograph, um, meeting other people who, are from all over the world who are part of the cruising community. Um, now it's the idea of being able to spend as much time underwater as we're spending on the water. When we are in the Caribbean, we spent so much time snorkeling and it was, it's just a whole other world that I didn't know before and is so beautiful. And I think one of the things that really draws me to cruising though, is spending time with Jeff in that way. We're together. We're really working out problems together. We're, like I said before, the boat feels like family. So it's me and Jeff and the boat, and we're like invincible when we're together. We can go <laughs> do anything we want to. And um, it's just a real sense of freedom and opportunity. And it's, it's pretty amazing. Alrighty, next up is the Litzenbergers, talking about sailing on a budget. And these guys have had their nose to the grindstone, but I've been messing, messaging with them a little bit. And they are coming back soon with some exciting new stuff, so keep an eye out for more vids and pods from them. So you guys have owned uh, five boats, as far as I can tell from, from the internet. Um, and you've spoken uh, about the kind of the buying process pretty extensively on your podcast. Um but when it comes to, to kind of selecting a boat and looking at a boat, are there kind of maintenance or condition issues that just cause you to immediately walk away? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> uh, we've gone a lot of different ways uh, and from having the most shitty engines to having a brand new beta marine. And generally in the price range that we're looking at, we can only pick to have one good thing. So if like you want a really good hull and rig, then you don't get a good engine especially in the $12,000, $15,000 price range. So it kind of depends on how we're feeling that day. We're looking at boats, but we, we jump pretty quick when we see boats we want because we want to go cruising. We don't like staying in yards very long. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, like, there's a few, like, rigging. We've actually never gotten a boat where we've had to redo after we should We should have on a lot of them. Yeah. Every person that's bought a boat from us has changed the rig immediately. Yeah. So, But we have personally never tackled rigging so i always thought that we bought boats like oh the rigging's fine i 
Yes. Yeah, I don't know if that was really. Uh, we've gotten really good at uh, coring holes. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think. Mostly the the motors are big for us because we've had so many terrible, terrible motors that, like, we know how much money you can dump into them and how much of a headache and how terrible it can make your cruising season. I know despite you have a sailboat and sail it, but, like, to be honest, you use your motor quite a bit. So, you know, it can make your or break your trip, really. Cool, cool. That's great. Um, and maybe we could close just by like, what is it that uh, that you guys love about, or what is one thing that you guys love about about sailing and, and living aboard? Uh, I personally love just the freedom of it that I get, get to go where I want when I want, and if I don't like my neighbors, I get to leave. Yeah, and I think I really like. Um... Oh, also, I get to share with you. Thank you. Yeah, that was first. Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bases covered. Uh... Yeah, yeah. We're all good. You can edit Almost. that, right? Almost. Turn that around. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, I think my one of my favorite things is the sailing community of cruisers. Like everybody just helps each other out it's so much, best. and yeah, everyone's just awesome that you run into. And even like this whole thing, like this would have never happened. You know, if it like, wasn't for boats, we wouldn't yeah, be here. exactly. And yeah, it's so yeah. cool. And you have such like. Of, I don't know. I feel like sailors tend to just have something that they truly connect over because everybody loves sailing, and then from there, it's like an instant friendship. Have you tried to talk to someone not about boats? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like it's pretty awkward. Yeah. 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 What's your favorite anchor? I don't have a boat. What the fuck are we talking? <laughs> <laughs> Boring. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's mine. Here's sailor and autopilot designer Sean DePanier talking about heavy weather and drogues aboard his Bristol 27. What about heavy weather and what kind of, uh, how do you deal with heavy weather? Um, just, uh, they say you just like pray or <laughs> just like close everything and go inside and pray. Is that what you do? Sort of, not really. I don't know. I'll try to just, I, I tend to run off the wind uh-huh. because it decreases like the relative wind speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as long as you have the the space to do it, but yeah. At some point, yeah, it's it, it's still dangerous. Yeah. What's the biggest seas you ever saw? Like I don't know, probably like the mast height. Big, big enough. They were they were breaking over the boom, so should be safe. What um? So do you have any way? I mean, do you have any way to slow that? Like, do you carry drogue or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, I do have drogue. Uh-huh. Yeah. Have you ever used any? I didn't. I should have used them a few times, but I didn't want to because I thought, oh well, it will calm down, uh-huh. and then maybe it got stronger. But I gotcha. Yeah, once you put them out, it's a big thing. You have to rig it right. Yeah, very, yeah, to be really strong. Yeah. I have all that, but then eventually, yeah, they could. It's hard to pull them back in again when you're done with it. Yeah. So you never quite, you never quite. Oh, I should have though, because yeah. if I, because I had breaking waves, uh, shattered a solar panel, maybe it could have been prevented if I had drove. Where, uh, where was that? That was out in, uh, between Fiji and New Zealand. Was there like a current? Oh, was there some current oh, what's happening? That, what's the name of that? The Tasman Sea? No. Oh. That's on the other side of New Zealand. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like the South Pacific. Oh. South of Fiji, I guess. 
So was it? I mean, was there like some current wind against current action, or was it just it a was big just, system? It was just big low pressure, yeah. and then there were waves coming from two different directions. Gotcha. Yeah. And so you were running off, and when the when, when the when the as the wind cocked around, you had the the boat would get knocked some sideways. Usually not. It would go a long time and be fine. But yeah. Sometimes you get knocked sideways, and then if a breaking wave hit right on the side, it was. It was making the whole boat flex and like breaking the wood inside yeah. the boat. Wow. And finally, from last month's episode, here's John Herlig of the Rawson 30 Ave Del Mar talking about seamanship and the black box metaphor. Um, and that, that's a good segue because I know you reference um, John Vigor's uh, black box theory a fair amount. And, uh, and I'm a big fan. I've always loved his writing. Um, so maybe you could just talk about, uh, that, how it kind of, uh, that kind of thinking affects your approach to sailing. You know, do you have like checklists and everything, or do you kind of see it more as like a, as, as discipline to do the right thing, you know, when, when it's, when it's irritating or convenient or, uh, or do you, you know, look at yeah. it in a different way? Um, I lived and worked on farms growing up as a young man. And there's this weird thing about farm life. It is just freaking relentless. Yeah. yeah. Your farm doesn't care if it's hot or cold or snowing or raining or if you're tired. There's just no days off. And there's this odd sort of rhythm that you eventually fall into with farm life. And you do it maybe not because you think working seven days a week is cool, but you do it because you have to, and finding a rhythm with it is kind of the only way forward. And I think that, to me, is somewhat analogous to how I view boat life. I don't mean to sound that it's suffering, um, but certainly there are a whole lot of snapshots in boat life that don't look very glamorous <laughs> and don't look very fun. Um, my girlfriend and I, hard aground in Charleston and 30 knot winds, both literally crying in the cockpit just from stress and exhaustion. Yeah, absolutely. Not fun while I'm sitting no. there looking at her going, by the way, we can't sink. We're already on the bottom. We're not going to die. It just sucks. So there's this whole philosophy in my head. Uh, that ties in both the black box theory and just why we do things in boats. And I always had to explain this to my kids because I'm not a superstitious person. And then they'd come aboard the boat and I was sort of following these, what ostensibly appear to be superstitious rules about what we do and don't do. And I, maybe my son especially was really calling me out on it. And, I was, and he's like, so you're superstitious. And I said, I'm not superstitious. <laughs> yeah. These are just the rules, and these are the rules we have to follow, and we follow them even though we don't understand why. And he goes, so you're superstitious. Um, and I finally got that through to him this way. I was reading an article once about this young man who was making, I believe, a Pacific crossing. really doesn't matter. He was single-handed. He was on a boat, him and his dog going across the ocean. Something went wrong and he was taking on water. I sincerely doubt that he hit a shipping container like Robert Redford. Odds are he had a through hole that was screwed up because that's almost always what it is. So his boat's taking on water. He didn't know his boat was taking on water. Here's the funny thing. His bilge pump was failing because it had clogged up with dog hair. 
when I was on my friend Chip and Tammy's island package, one of my daily chores was to sweep. And my first day on the boat, I said, aren't we on the water? Is there really that much dust out here? I don't understand why I'm sweeping. And they said, you're sweeping because your job is sweeping. And I said, okay. <laughs> and my point in all of this is that some of these might be superstitious and some of them might have reason in logic that we just don't understand yet because we haven't experienced the context that makes it work. That's how I rationalize the things that I do on the boat. And there's there's one more aspect to it, um, which is sort of back to the farm thing. When I go through daily – if I start a major trip, I make an offering to the gods off the back of my boat. I don't do it – like if I'm going down the Intracoastal Waterway, I will do it the first day when I leave. I don't do it every morning when I weigh anchor. But that journey gets an offering – to Poseidon and Neptune at the beginning when I leave. And as I was taught, he gets whatever my best stuff is on the boat because I don't want to piss him off by giving him the cheap rum. That's right. Um, I do that not because I actually think that there's some floating thing called Poseidon that's going to decide based on its mood whether or not I get through to the other side, but as an exercise in reminding myself that there are things I'm supposed to do that men have been doing for, I should say men and women, that humankind has been doing for thousands of years to sail safely through to the other side. Um, and so when I go through these rituals, in my mind, the ones that I think are hogwash, I do full-heartedly as a reminder to myself that I don't understand it all and that I have to keep paying attention to every rule that all these old sailors taught me, even if I don't know why or don't understand why it exists. And that to me is what the black box theory is. It's about doing things. It's about getting up and feeding the animals and milking the cows on Sunday, even though you don't want to. Um, black box theory to me is getting to your anchorage and looking at your engine anchor, your engine hours and saying, crap, I got to change the oil and doing it anyway, even though all you want to do is have a bite to eat and go to bed, even though it's only 7.30, you're exhausted, doing it anyway. That's it for this episode of The Bonnie Boat. Thanks for listening. I know time is my most scarce resource these days, so I appreciate you uh, choosing to spend your time listening here. One of the reasons I decided to throw my hat into the podcast ring is to get in touch with other like-minded sailing maniacs. To that end, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email me at thebonnieboat at gmail.com. You can find us online at thebonnieboat.wordpress.com. And remember, to be a sailor, you don't need a YouTube channel with 100,000 video subscribers. You don't need an Instagram account with pictures of beautiful people in their bathing suits. You certainly don't need a podcast. You don't even need a boat. You just need to go sailing. Until next time, this is Firefly standing by on Channel 16.